and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another fantastic episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach, and I founded a company called Strong Skills. At Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we believe that labeling competencies like leadership, communication, teamwork, emotional intelligence, curiosity, when you label these skills as soft, it actually devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. So we're trying to change all that and hopefully you'll join us. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then I know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased the book, and I really have been overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Lastly, If you enjoyed today's episode or any of our previous conversations, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really does help us expand the reach of the podcast, and you wouldn't believe how many people find us via those ratings and rankings and comments and feedback that people leave on iTunes. Thank you to all of you for continuing to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Nick Tassler is someone whose career I've been following for quite some time via social media. He had this amazing assessment that was really simple that could help people discover their values. And we're going to talk about that in this conversation. But Nick is an organizational psychologist. He's a husband. He's a dad. He's somebody who just thinks about science and human nature all the time. He loves writing. He loves speaking. He loves thinking about what makes organizations and companies and people thrive and how do we add meaning to our lives and to our careers. 
He is an internationally acclaimed thought leader, organizational psychologist, as I mentioned, and he also is a best-selling author. He's been featured in the New York Times, Bloomberg Businessweek, The Atlantic, the BBC, NPR, NBC, all over the place, all over media. But as I said before, what I really was drawn to was Nick's interest in values, his interest as it pertains to organizations and how they can thrive and how they can develop. And he really is at his core, someone who thinks a lot about decision-making and how decision-making impacts our lives and our careers and our businesses. So I'm excited to share Nick with you and we're going to learn together. So pull out a pad of paper, a pen, get the notes ready on your phone. And here is Nick Tassler. Nick, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I first found your work when you created the Decision Pulse. And the thing that struck me with the Decision Pulse was that the values that we have, it actually matters what the order of those values are. And that was the first time I had really thought about values in that way and in that context. And then I started having all of my clients take your Decision Pulse and just to see the order of their values, and it sparked a ton of conversations. I'm not sure where the decision pulse is now, um, but I, I'd love to learn where it is because I used to send clients there, and now I can't send them. There. I know it. Uh, it got lost in a in a uh, new website migration uh, this summer, but it's it's going to be back. It's going to be back. It's a it's on a temporary hiatus, a sabbatical. So talk about the decision pulse and, and yeah. where that came from. And, and that was, as I said, the first place that I found out about you. And I'll give you my top three values, which were humanity, freedom, and relationships. And it was just mm -hmm. interesting to see those at the top of the, of the chain or the pyramid, so to speak. So talk about the decision pulse, that assessment, and why you think about values as, as it relates to the order of the values. Yeah, definitely. So uh, I can't remember exactly what the, what the, main impetus was that got me going down that direction, but it was something along the lines of, so I started doing research on decision-making and this is, I worked at this company in, in San Diego and it was sort of more or less a think tank of, of industrial psychologists. And one of the main things that we do as organizational industrial psychologists is uh, we create assessments. We, we measure people. Um, and so we started doing this, this work on decision-making. So we, we create these tools and then we do research uh, based on the data that we get from you know, distributing these to various people, clients, and just on the internet. And one of the things that, that came up is uh, one of the key things about decision-making is we tend to put a lot of emphasis on things like uh, you know, making the right decision in the moment, but the it sort of the right decision in the moment is, I don't want to call it useless, but it's not nearly as valuable if it isn't tied to some overarching purpose, some overarching direction. And that's, that's as true for uh, business strategy, uh, career growth, or personal lives. And that's really where the decision pulse idea came from is, is in that personal aspect. And so I started doing some research on what, what does that look like for us? So we know that every business, every good business needs to have an overarching strategic direction, a statement of, of where are we trying to go? That's a little, it's deeper than a mission statement. And, and maybe if I go back to that for our personal lives, uh, I think is a similar thing. So a lot of times we'll talk about, you know, what's, what's your mission as an organization, as a department, as a, for your career and for your life. 
But oftentimes the mission statement for us as human beings and for our lives is just as vague and vanilla and ultimately, um, again, I don't want to use the word useless, but it's not, it's not instructional for how do I make this decision. So I want to make the world a better place. What, what does that necessarily mean for how I, whether I decide to answer this email or that email? And what does it mean for my, my career? You know, it's, it's, it's nice to have and it's inspiring, but it's, it does not very instructive for how do we make decisions in the moment. And so I thought it needs to be, because we all eventually, at some level, we all want health, wealth, and happiness. We all want to make a difference. And all those things are important, but quite often, and this is the point, is that quite often health and wealth and happiness and making a difference and having a, you know, being a good parent and leading a good life, those things will come in conflict with each other. And so what do you do then? Right. And, and that's the whole idea of the decision pulses. Yes, we all want humanity. We all want freedom to a certain extent. We all want safety and security. We all want power and prestige. And we don't want to be influential, at least. We want achievement. Uh, we want stimulation and challenge. And we want all those things. But quite often, we have to make decisions about if I do, if I get this thing, it's going to take away from that thing. And then what do I do? And that I think is you're maybe pointing out with your clients. That's where the sticking point comes along, particularly with highly motivated people and people that are sort of achievement oriented and they're ambitious. They, we, we want it all. Uh, but <laughs> the problem is we can't have it all at the same time. And so we need to clarify what is the, the, the most important for us and what are we willing to give up a little bit of so we can get that? It's interesting when I hear we want to have it all. I grew up in a house with my dad who is in his industry hall of fame, monetarily, financially successful, was home for dinner every night, coached our teams, like hall of fame type dad mm -hmm. that others would go to and say, how do you, how do you have these things? And so for me, like I was brought up and it's a blessing and a curse. The blessing is I saw someone who lived in a very intentional way and uh, I think was successful in a lot of different areas of his life. Uh, the other side of it is I expect that for myself, right. which, which can be daunting at times. Um, but there's something interesting in, in what you talked about, because when I looked at my values, I think security on your decision pulse was, was really low. Mm -hmm. And so I started reflecting on, well, why is that? And I think it might be because I'm pretty secure. And right. so I, I'm curious for you, if you think about those, those values and, and you boiled it down to, I think, eight values. Yeah. Um, do you find that when, when the values are lower, it's not necessarily that I don't value security. It's that because I have security, maybe I don't need to value it right now. But if I lose my job or I lose my house or I lose something that can cause me to feel more insecure, then maybe security goes higher up the list. Do you find that there's any shifting or changing that can go on with the values? Yeah, that's a, that's a great observation. So the evolution of, of my thinking and, and just to give you a little bit of the background. So these, these eight things that I, um, I, that I came up with, I didn't really come up with. There's uh, researchers on, on values that have distilled human values based on, you know, statistical breakdowns uh, that as human beings, we have somewhere between eight to 10 universal 
values. And then in my field, other organizational psychologists have dis distilled it down to those eight. And that's where I, you know, that's where that, so that comes from research also. That's just not just me imagining. Uh, for, but, for the listeners, Nick, I'll just go over them. Humanity, achievement, security, mm -hmm. uh, authority, power, relationships, stimulation, and freedom. So that's right. we're all on the same page now. Yeah, that's right. And and there is a little bit of a, um, they're related, you know, they can, they're kind of, they kind of have natural opposites and natural sort of partners and cousins that they're right next to, they kind of cluster together. But you, you bring up a really good point. And that was actually uh, a couple of years after I come up with the tool and, and started talking about it, I was speaking to a group of uh, business owners. And one woman in the audience had said sort of, exactly what you're saying she was getting at this point saying so i typically would want she said i think normally when i look at this for most of my life freedom would, would probably be the value freedom and stimulation would probably be the values that i would put the highest but at this moment in my life i just i'm going through a divorce i just changed my job and security has jumped to the top exactly what you're saying right um and and so I, when I initially created the tool and, you know, it's, uh, I, I had, I had envisioned it as sort of this kind of time transcendent value and that the ranking should be fairly stable over time, almost like a personality trait. Right. But, you know, the value, the decision pulse, your decision pulse is something that you choose and at different times, we're going to put things higher. And I, and I like the way you said that too. It's, security maybe isn't that high because you're very feeling very secure. Uh, and so freedom might be really high because you're so secure, you feel suffocated, right? And so what looks the most appealing at this moment in time is freedom, is this liberation, maybe a little bit of stimulation because I'm so secure, I'm so into a routine, you might even call it a rut, <laughs> that I feel like I just wanna break out of that, right? Now, I would say, over time, if you keep, if you take this assessment every year and you keep coming back to it, I do think there's going to be some themes and that they are going to stay fairly stable, but they certainly can fluctuate based on the, whatever season you're in, in your life right now. And here we are, it's January, 2022. We are still in a pandemic. I've, uh -huh. I've said that so many times on this podcast, just not January, 2022. And I know for you personally, this has been an upheaval time for your career. You, you, mm -hmm. you usually are on the road and you're traveling and you're speaking. And I've had a lot of people on the podcast. I have a lot of friends who make their living from speaking and they're mm -hmm. used to being on the road. And, and that's been an interesting industry to be in. I'll just use the term interesting uh, yeah. <laughs> over the last almost two years now. For you, and as you think about your values and you think about the pandemic, how are you adapting as you think about this season in your life and, and what that looks like for you? Yeah, so, so for me, so my, my order is, is freedom is always, has always been number one and, and I haven't really wavered on that too much. Now, of course, um, there, are, there are times, right, when uh, you know, I could probably <laughs> use a little more security but I think also because I'm, because this is my life, this is the, you know, this is the, the, the pond that I swim in uh, 24 hours a day. Um, I'm a little more aware of the trade-offs that I'm making because, 
So, so I still, even, even during the, the chaos of the pandemic, and as you said, it was uh, interesting, it was a really nice word <laughs> that you used to describe the last two years, but upheaval is probably a more correct word, a uh, more accurate word. And even in that time, I still, I wouldn't want to trade my freedom, but that's, I'm, uh, I'm, I think I'm, I'm somewhat unique in that regard. Uh, I've already sort of like, I've cast my lot and I'll go down with the ship at this point, right? Um, I, I made that decision. So for me, adapting was saying, well, I'm not ready to, I'm not ready to cash in, right? So I'm not also, March, 2020, all of a sudden I'm, I'm traveling like crazy, Jan, you know, for the last 12 months and all of a sudden just, <laughs> it just stops instantly overnight. And the, I think the general view for, for me and people in my, in my industry, in my world, for the first six weeks, it was, you know, by end of April, we'll be back on the road. Uh, by end of May, we'll be, we'll be back at it. So, you know, shore up, you know, maybe some of your marketing and do those changes to your website that you haven't had time to do. And, you know, we'll be back at it in two months. And then, you know, then mid-May rolls around and it's like, ah, no, I don't think we're going to be back at it anytime soon. And so for me, and I think many others, it was sort of, uh, it was a decision time, right? And in my decision, I know other speakers, so say maybe they, you know, they just decided, I, I'm just, I'm taking six months off if that's what it takes. Like I'm, I'm not dealing with this virtual business. And for me, I had to make that decision, you know, do I want to do that? Is it smart for me to do that? Um, you know, can I, can I really afford to do that for my, you know, my brand and my career and all, all, all the rest of that. And I made the decision, you know, if we're in a virtual world, uh, I just need to give myself a crash course on, going virtual, you know, and at the time I didn't even have a webcam, you know, <laughs> I, was, I, I did no, no virtual. And so my version of adaptation was if I want to maintain this freedom, my decision pulse, um, then I need to kind of, kind of ironically, uh, I need to get very disciplined about very quickly climbing this learning curve of what virtual presenting looks like. And so I made some pretty significant financial investments in equipment and studio. Uh, and I gave myself just a crash course on audio video. You know, you, you're doing this podcast. You probably have, I think you know much more about it than, than I do, or there's certainly than I did. Um, and it was just that matter of, of making that decision of, I'm not going to ride the fence and maybe it's going to last. Maybe it's not, maybe I'll be back. And I just flipped the switch and went all in on, on virtual. There, uh, there's a, there's a lot there. And I keep coming back to this. You know, Simon Sinek's work is really popular. Mm -hmm. you know, start with why, then go to how, then go to what. And so I've mm -hmm. always thought of why being really the mission, the how being your philosophy, mm -hmm. uh, and then the what being your vision. Like, what is it that you want? Mm -hmm. But I've always thought like underneath that, why, how, and what? And I think, I think it's, so simply brilliant that I, mm -hmm. I mean, I use it with everything and everyone. I think the one thing underneath it, underneath that why to your point are the values and mm -hmm. like, what are the values that are driving my why? Mm -hmm. And I don't think they're necessarily the same thing as I hear you say, look, if I'm going to keep my freedom, that value, then I'm going to have to make some decisions that align with that 
let's just start with that number one value. But here's the interesting thing about freedom is it's in our, it's at the top of both of our lists. And yet I think about you and me, and I think we're actually quite different. Um, mm -hmm. You lived in 11 different homes before you were 18 years old. Mm -hmm. I lived in one. You've lived <laughs> in 35 different homes at least. And yeah. You're recording this from somewhere that's not even your home right now. Um, <laughs> you know, I've settled in this home that I'm going to raise my family in with no real desire to leave. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I live in the area that I grew up in. Um, so it's interesting that we both can value freedom, but that freedom can show up very differently just yeah. in regard to that element of our lives. Mm -hmm. So can we just pull on that thread a little bit and how you yeah. think about how a value for me and a value for you can lead to us making actually very different decisions, even if it's based on the same value. That's right. That's right. And, and it's really how you define that value. What does it personally mean to you? And I would say the common thread between your version of freedom and my version of freedom. And for me, it's, I mean, there is, you know, as you mentioned, the constant moving and, and whatnot, there, there is a little bit of, geographical freedom i'll call it that's a part of my my version but the most important part like the, the 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 core of my definition of freedom and this is where i think we probably have this in common is i want to be free to think about what i want to think about when i want to think about it right and so that's essentially why you do what you do and why i do what i do all right and that's why you know, I, I worked in, in corporate America for that. That's where I began my career. And, you know, in many ways, no question about it. Had I stayed on that path, um, security and many of the other things that, that I could value, I would have had in spades compared to what I've had in this, you know, crazy journey of going out on my own. The difference is I had to think about what somebody else wanted me to think about. And for me, I was willing to trade all the trappings of, of the security just to have that mental freedom. And, and I think maybe that's the freedom that we share is that, is that mental freedom. For sure. And I think we also probably want to own our own calendar and, and be able mm -hmm. to dictate when we do certain things and when we don't. Um, mm -hmm. And it's interesting though, you, you mentioned you're an organizational psychologist. So a difference in our journeys as well is that I really focused on performance and individuals and you, it seems like we're most interested in how organizations function and operate. When you go in and, and consult or do a talk to an organization, given your background and saying, hey, I actually wanted to be outside of this type of organization, how do you keep some of your biases to value freedom and to value that autonomy to think how you want, when you want? but you're going to an organization that might be highly political and right. they might have systems and processes that are designed to say, Hey, we need to operate this way. I think about mm -hmm. Facebook and how Facebook, you know, at first was, you know, move fast and break things. And then they were like, wait a second. Now we're getting into trouble. We've like, broken a few too many things. <laughs> we can't break anything. We can't break things anymore. Right. So organizations that get bigger and bigger do have to create those systems to, create security for people, but, mm -hmm. and, and there are the Googles of the world that seem to run a pretty nice balance of, Hey, we're going to give you security and we're also going to give you some freedom. Um, right. and, and we're going to give you a good salary and you're not going to have mm -hmm. to leave the campus or whatever mm -hmm. it was for the last 20 years that may be changing for the next 10 years. But, um, for you, 
as you consult to these organizations and knowing what you bring and your journey and your history, how do you make sure that you're not bringing your own biases into the work uh, and, and still making sure you're serving that organization? Yeah, well, for one thing, I think it's, it's impossible not to. I mean, we all, you know, it's funny. I was, I was just, I was at the the gym this morning and I was, I was talking with uh, uh, a friend and we were having sort of this conversation. We were talking about something different about, I was saying how, you know, going to this gym with, with these coaches, I always learn something different than when I'm back in Puerto Rico with my gym and my coach. And it's not that one is better than the other. It's just over time, part of the reason, part of the thing that's made them experts in what they do is that they've developed a worldview, right? And so we all have this kind of natural filter. And so I don't, one thing is I'm, I'm transparent about, it. I don't kid myself and believe that I can walk into an organization and, and totally check my biases at the, I can't check my worldview at the door. It's just not possible, right? But I am cognizant of the fact that my life decisions uh, are not necessarily going to be in, in alignment with a lot of the life decisions of the people in that room and <laughs> certainly not in alignment with, with how the, you know, the, the bosses would like their life decisions to be because they want to keep these people, right? They don't want them working on their own. And so I'm aware of that. And so one of the things I do is, is and I even do this, I've done this with my friends um, who's, who will sometimes see me and like, wow, you get to do all this cool stuff and everything. And then, and I, and I have kind of like a list of here's what you don't see, right? Here's, here's all the things that I've had to put up with, you know, while you were getting a nice fat paycheck and, and health insurance and, and benefits and 401k. Um, here's what I, what I did, you know? Hey, and what, so it's kind of like, what are some of those things? Because I think we glamorize and glorify the entrepreneur and we sometimes, minimize the 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 working man so to speak the person that's that's working for a, a big corporation but i think there is tremendous value to working for an organization and a company so what are the things that you do say to them that yeah. hey maybe you don't see you only see me getting to travel or you only get to see mm -hmm. me set my hours or living mm -hmm. where i want to want where i want to yeah. live or earning x for a speaking gig um what are some of the things you do check them on yeah so one one of the big things is is benefits. I mean, quite, quite honestly, you know, is is from the time that they started working, they've had employer matching 401k contributions forever, you know, and I've had virtually none of that after, you know, my first five years in the working world. And, you know, that that's a huge thing. And um, um, healthcare. So I've had, uh, you know, for a little while, my my wife is a nurse by training. And and so we had some healthcare from her, but then she stopped working when the when the kids uh, started coming. And so we've had, you know, I mean, private healthcare, uh, it's not a not an exaggeration to say we would spend 30 or $40,000 per year on healthcare. And we had insurance, you know, but it's insurance with like a, a $15,000 deductible and $2,000 a month premium. And there's all these things that most people, you know, that, that are, uh, you know, working for someone else kind of take for granted because they've never known a world without that. Like lots of these, these things are gifts that you have and their stability. There's, you have stresses, 
but the stresses that that uh, that I have, you don't have, and you've you've not had them. So before you get all excited and like I don't want to work for the man anymore, and I'm going to go and do my own thing, just know what you're getting into. And as I said, I've already I've already made my my decision, right? I came to terms with it um, that this is this is what I want to do, and I'm willing to basically take any risk to make it happen, right? Um, and and not because I'm brave and heroic, but, you know, I'm just, I'm wired a little differently and you need to know that. I'll tell you the other thing. This is maybe the most valuable part about identifying your values. And I think you'll appreciate this, Brian, is I took the decision pulse assessment and my wife took the decision pulse assessment. And, you know, it's one thing when you're 22 and single to say, I'm going to go do this crazy thing. It's a very, very different thing when you have a partner or you have kids that, you know, you're, you're intertwined. Your lives are, are intertwined now. And I would say one of the most helpful things for our marriage is she gave, did her, uh, figured out her decision pulse and how her eight values lined up and I did mine and we compared them and we had a lot of conversations and many, many of the conflicts that we had came down to. So my number one is freedom. Her number one is relationships. Okay. In practice, what that meant is she's always, she like, it's so important to her that she has close personal relationships. She has probably 25 best friends and so we're constantly, she was constantly having, uh, you know, organizing get togethers and, and, and meetings and, and little dates and things with all of these people that is just eating my freedom. You know, every free minute of my day was being spent, you know, building her relationships. And so now I understand what's important to her. She understands what's important to me. And we have to find that equilibrium, which we've done. But it was really kind of like that thing that, um, you know, it's like the elephant in the room that neither of us saw prior to this. That's great. I think you mentioned personality earlier. I think personality assessments aren't good for everything, but they are really interesting when you're talking about partners in business or partners mm -hmm. in life, um, just because it helps you see some potential blind spots that you have or some potential blind spots that you have as it relates to your partner. And that can be really helpful. You know, it's hitting me as we're having this conversation. I like to watch professional football, NFL, mm -hmm. and yesterday I'm watching a game and it was the chiefs versus the Bengals. Mm -hmm. And for those that don't know, the chiefs have been this juggernaut of a team the last few years. They won a super bowl. Um, and the Bengals have not, and they're kind of on the, up and up and they're starting to really they've got a good young team and yesterday they were playing to win their division if they won mm -hmm. that game and the Bengals have the ball late in the game and all they need is a field goal to win the game it's a tied game and they have the ball on the one yard line mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. they keep trying keep trying they stop 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 and then it's fourth down and they decide to go for it on fourth down with a minute left uh, and instead of kicking the field goal mm -hmm. and the chiefs have no timeouts. So the chiefs would have had to get the ball back and they're an amazing offense, but they would have had sure. to drive the ball down with a minute left, no timeouts. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, kick the damn field goal. Mm -hmm. And if anyone's watching the NFL this year, you'll notice that a lot of these teams are going for it on fourth down far more than they ever have. Mm -hmm. 
And I'm in the sports world, so I know how analytics and data has really transformed, whether the old timers want to admit it or not, it has transformed sports. Almost every sport has been transformed from data and analytics. Just watch a professional basketball game and you will see them shoot three pointers, layups and free throws. It, it, every team. Um, mm-hmm. But I want to go back to this because you have spent a lot of your career focused on decision making. And so here they are, they are trusting the data and the analytics. And there's something that's saying, you still go for it on fourth down. And I'm sitting there and I'm texting with my friends. I'm saying, no, they have to kick the field goal here. And so I want to talk about trusting your gut compared to data and and analytics and and risk aversion and how that plays a role and how you see it. Um, I know this has been something that you've spent a lot of time studying and thinking about. I'm just using the Bengals and Chiefs game as an example, for spoiler alert for those that didn't watch, uh, the Bengals end up going for it. They don't get the play, but they get a penalty. Um, so they get a whole new set of four downs. They get to wind down the clock all the way, and then they kick a field goal. And, and then they kick the field goal, yeah. No time on the clock. Um, but it was it, it, there, there are a million of those that happen in, in sports, and we see it all the time. When you trust your gut, when you you go with the data and the analytics and, and then also I think risk aversion plays a role as well. So as you put your decision uh, making hat on, how do you think about all of that? Uh, as I just gave a lot of, a lot of information. Yeah, no, no, that's uh, it's a definitely, it's a huge topic right now. I mean, it's always, it's always been an important part of our lives, but right now it's huge. And, and I would say in many of my clients, it's because there's sort of been this, this kind of, scramble around pandemic sort of funk that is just like everyone is just batting down the hatches and trying to figure out how to get to the next week. And now the certainly the overriding theme from all my clients is, okay, we're still, we still have this on and on again, off again relationship with the pandemic that, that may or may not end in 2022, but, but we're, we need to start thinking big again, right? We need to start, stepping out of our, our comfort zone and stop just playing for the next week and, and start imagining what's possible again and start thinking about the long term once again and start taking action, taking risks, being bold. But at the same time, uh, the, the people within the organization are saying, I would love to take risks. I would love to be bold, but I have a job to protect. I have a family to protect. I have a career to protect. And so you have this tension between, I want to take risk, but I don't want to get fired or do something dumb. And so my answer to this is to rent the RV. Let me explain. Okay. So uh, a while back, my, my wife and I moved from San Diego to Minneapolis. And in a span of, of three months, we moved across country. We bought our first home. Our first child was born beautiful baby boy named Ruben, slept an average of 27 minutes a night the first six months he was alive. And in the span of all this, I was fortunate enough to get my first book deal, right? So Simon and Schuster had looked at my proposal. They said, it looks great. Now you have six months to turn this, this outline into a 250 page book. Fantastic, except for all the other crap going on in my life at that point. And so I'm trying to figure out for the first time, how do you write a book, right? I'm like, lifelong dream, and now it's here, and what am I supposed to do, right? And in the midst of all this, um, 
I decided that the best way to cure stress, thank you, George Bush, circa 2002, is to go shopping, right? Um, that's, that's how we, uh, you know, like every good red-blooded American consumer, the best way to cure stress is to go shopping. And what I bought on this shopping trip was not a new hat or a new pair of jeans. I bought a motorhome. And this was a terrible, terrible decision on so many levels. <laughs> The biggest reason, well, a few reasons why it was bad. One, because I'd never driven a motorhome before. I may be the world's worst driver of any vehicle. Because we moved into the city of Minneapolis, where there's no place to park a 31 and a half foot monstrosity. But the biggest reason why it was a bad decision is because it moved me in the exact opposite direction of my personal decision pulse, which is freedom, right? The whole point is, in my, my stressed out, judgment-clouded state of mind, all I could think about is what would spell freedom more than cruising down the old American highway with everything I own behind me on two axles. In reality, of course, the motorhome just created obligation after obligation after obligation. Well, after the dust settled, I figured out that one easy, simple solution here would have been, instead of making one very big, very costly decision to buy an RV, I could have made one very small decision, taken a little bit of time and a little bit of money and rented an RV to see, does this actually fit with my pulse, right? When I, my definition of freedom, does this actually work with it? And had I done that, it would have been abundantly clear that when I say freedom, this is not what I'm talking about right? This is might be somebody else's definition of freedom. It's not mine. So now if we apply that to, to the business world, to your career, to whatever it is you're trying to accomplish, there's very few decisions in the world that we can't rent the RV before we buy the RV, right? So it's all about, uh, it's all about testing your gut rather than blindly trusting your gut. And I think that's the key to what you're getting at here is we can take risks, but we don't have to bet the farm every time. You make little bets, take little risks. And then once you have some real data, some real information, then you can make a bigger bet, right? But it's all, it's all about remembering to rent the RV. You don't have to make an all or nothing decision right from the get-go. It's interesting. The, where my head went to is my relationship with my wife. We started dating you know, six months in, I said, Hey, I'm moving to California from Washington, DC. Um, and you know, I've got this opportunity. I'm going to go there. Like, you want to come? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> she said, yeah. And then, so the plan was to move to San Francisco and I was going to have an apartment. She was going to have an apartment and her mom, she's an only child and her and her mom are very close. Mm -hmm. Mom said, wait, so you're both going to move to San Francisco. You don't know anybody there. It's an expensive city. Um, and you're not going to live together. That doesn't mm -hmm. make any sense. Mm -hmm. And we were like, well, we're still new in this relationship, right. um, but we were like, you know what, let's try it out. And if mm -hmm. it doesn't work, then we'll know. Um, mm -hmm. And so one of the best pieces of advice I ever got in partnership is that you should live together before you get married. Mm -hmm. And I think of that similarly as renting the RV. And certainly we had our trials and tribulations <laughs> right. uh, as any roommates do. Uh -huh. um, but I think a lot of people go into business without living together. They go mm -hmm. into business just because of the opportunity and then they get married. And mm -hmm. for us, we are, okay, here's the opportunity. Let's move in together. Let's test it. 
If it doesn't work, then then we'll know. And so I love the idea of testing it, renting it, experimenting with the RV. Um, I want to go to this idea of decision making in a different, even in a different lens, which is, I'm just going to use the salesperson that becomes the sales manager and uh, as an example here, because mm-hmm. I think constituents also dictate our decision making. So I've worked with people that go from salesperson to sales manager. And I find it fascinating that jump because as a salesperson, their main focus is to keep their customers happy. And if they keep their customers happy, then they are going to win as well. So it's like, Hey, all I got to do is sell and make sure my client's happy. Um, So it's me and the client, then they become a sales manager. Now, all of a sudden they have to think about, uh, their salespeople. They have to think about those people's clients, but they also now have to think maybe about customer service or marketing. And and now they might have to also think about the C-suite and what their direction is. And they have to play this bridge and they have to get into many, many more constituents. And so as you work with organizations and you see teams and you see management and leaders have to make decisions that aren't as clean and clear or black and white. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a whole lot of nuance and gray and polarity that might exist within their decision-making. What do you notice? What do you find? What do you see uh, from your seat? Yeah, well, it's, it it is. So it's okay. So I have this, I have this three-part framework that, that that addresses both the things we've been talking about. And the first part, every time you make a decision is you have to, you have to check your pulse. Okay. And so, so square one is what is it that we're really trying to focus on here? Because a lot of that, a lot of that grayness that you're talking about comes from the fact that we're not clear about what it is that we're trying to focus on right now. Okay. So every business wants to take care of their customers, make money and live happily ever after. Right. But what does that mean for your business right now for this year? Okay. And for the next six months, for the next three months, even. And that's where it, it comes down to getting really clear about, uh, you know, what is what is going to be our focal point? What is going to be our, our decision pulse? And a lot of times, like, I love this. Is this old um, uh, story from Herb Kelleher, right? The, the legendary CEO and, and uh, co-founder of Southwest Airlines, now the late Herb Kelleher. And as the story goes, you know, back in the 90s, he's telling one of his friends, I could teach you how to run this airline in 30 seconds, right? Um, run Southwest Airlines is what he's talking about. And, and uh, he tells his friend, you, you know, every, you can make every decision I do as long as you know this one thing. We are the low fare airline, the low fare airline. And his friend looks at him kind of dubiously and is thinking, come on, Herb, don't you think you're oversimplifying your job as a Fortune 500 CEO just a teeny bit? And Keller says, all right, well, let me show you how this works in practice. Let's say that uh, Joe from marketing comes into your office and he says, we just got the results back from the customer satisfaction survey that we did. And it turns out that passengers on our flight between Houston and Las Vegas want some food. And all we serve is peanuts. So I was thinking we could start serving a nice chicken Caesar salad. And wouldn't that satisfy our customers for their very own request? And Keller says, well, this is how you respond to Joe. You say, Joe, we'll serve it a nice chicken Caesar salad. Help us to maintain our position as the unquestioned low fare airline on the flight between Houston and Las Vegas. Because if it doesn't, we ain't serving any damn chicken salads. Now, the point here, right, is that every good leader should start swearing at their employees. Uh, <laughs> no, no. But the, the point is, how is a normal employee 
supposed to know that listening to customers is not the right answer, right? And that's where it comes down to clarifying, yes, of course, we want to make our customers happy. Of course, we want to make money. Of course, we want to, you know, have good margins. Of course, we want to do all the things that every business on the face of the earth wants to do. But for our business, for our position, given our unique strengths in this particular marketplace, which by the way, PS applies to your personal life and your career as well. Um, what is going to be our focal point? And that's where you get rid of a lot of that clarity. That's how you tell people, this is the right risk to take. This is the wrong risk to take. You know, I was talking to a group of high potential leaders at General Electric a while back, um, shortly after I wrote my first book. And we were talking about this issue and I was asking them, when is it okay for you to, um, to take a risk? And and they, the answer that one of the one of the ladies gave was, um, you know, it's okay to take a risk as long as it's directionally correct. And if it's directionally correct, it doesn't really matter if because not all risk is gonna is gonna work out. That's why it's a risk, right? That's why it's not a sure thing. But if you take a risk that's directionally correct and it's and it's intended to move in the right direction, then it's okay. Now, if you take a risk that's not directionally correct and it, and it flops, well, now you're gonna be in trouble. Now you're gonna, now we're gonna say you had bad judgment, but the key, you know, the key distinction is not that they took a risk, it's that they took a risk in the wrong direction, right? And I, I think that's really important for us to know as we're building businesses and careers. When you mentioned Herb Kelleher and you mentioned, you know, CEO of a massive company, I think about three elements of, great CEOs that I've been fortunate to coach and be around is number one, they have a good attention to detail. I think that's the least sexy one, but uh, they have to have attention to detail and not let things slip through the cracks, but they also have to be a strategy person, innovative, creative, visionary. There are examples of those uh, jobs. Pick, pick your sec Elon Musk, pick your sexy CEO that you want to mm -hmm think of, we all know them. And then there's a third part, which I think is there has to be some emotional intelligence there that they yeah. need to be able to manage people and, and deal mm -hmm. with people. And what I've found in my work is that there are often clients that I have that might have two of those three. Uh, they might have great attention to detail, great emotional intelligence, but maybe they're not the innovative, creative, visionary, or maybe they are the innovative, uh, creative, uh, emotionally intelligent person, but they lack attention to detail, or, or maybe they have the attention to detail and the strategy, but they lack the emotional intelligence, the people skills. Um, in your work with leaders, and, and, and you've done a lot of this work, what have you found as it relates to what leads to uh, great leadership, and specifically around the CEOs and, and around the top person? I also work with head coaches, and, and they're in a similar spot where, they, hey, they have to make decisions, and they're not always the most well-liked person in the room. Um, yeah. What do you notice uh, are uh, around those people. Well, you know, I think there's all kinds of personalities that can work. I mean, we've you know we we've seen that, and um, you know, it's hard. I always I always hesitate to distill it down to just a, a couple of things, but I I think you know, bottom line, it's very similar to the three things that uh, that you mentioned, right? There has to be emotional intelligence. There has to be actual intelligence you know, to a certain level, right? Um, you know, what we know from tons of research is that, that cognitive ability is important up to a certain level. You know, like you have to be like average or above average IQ to really be a good leader. Um, 
but beyond that, there's there's no points for being in Mensa, right? That that is that really is is now it's when we turn over to emotional intelligence, and um, and I think those two things alone, if you take the you know the the, the actual just cognitive brain power, horsepower, and the emotional intelligence, I think right there we've got two key things. And I, then from there, you can break that down into, well, how does that relate to decision-making? How does that relate to strategic thinking? How does that relate to all these, how does it relate to, you know, inspiring the hearts and minds of your people? Uh, how does that relate to just actually managing, like you're saying, attention to detail? Um, because there is, you know, one of the things that's been pointed out in, in my world is, is there has sort of become this like um, cult of the heroic leader. And, and, there's just good old fashioned management is a key element. You can't, you can't just get rid of that. If you're just the visionary, but you don't have attention to detail and you let stuff slide by, um, <laughs> you know, that's, that's going to get you into, that's going to get you into trouble in the long run. And I think for me that you talk about before, like kind of checking your, your biases and how do you know that for me, I know I have a bias toward the visionary, right? I wish that all it took was was big thinking and vision because that's what I like to do. That's what I'm good at. Attention to detail is something that I've really had to work hard uh, to become good at. But it is a critical element, particularly if you are managing other people, right? Um, and you've got a lot of irons in the fire. You have to be you have to be attentive to the detail, and you have to be uh, you know uber organized. And again, another thing that I think I would struggle if I had to manage a huge team of people, that would be my Achilles heel. Um, I think of, to the attention to D, I think of Jamie Dimon, supposedly he walks around every day with like one sheet of paper that's just filled with all the things that he's going to take care of, you know, in his massive empire. And every day it's a new sheet of paper and it's just chock full of details, right? Um, and that's a key, key part of it. Yeah, and for those who don't know, Jamie Dimon, CEO of JP Morgan. And it's interesting because attention to detail you hit on for me, that that's my Achilles. And like, I think I have the people skills. I, I have the creativity, but um, I'm in environments sometimes where I'm like, man, my attention to detail is not what this person's is. And um, so it's, it's just something that I've noticed and I've, I've sort of played with a little bit as we zoom back out to the organization. And I know that that's been a big piece of, of your work. I like to think about team flow a lot. And um, in, in the sports world, we all talk about being in the zone and, and being in, in the flow state. Um, but one of the things I'm fascinated by are when teams can get into a, a team flow, uh, mm -hmm. an organizational flow. Uh, any thoughts on that as it relates to um, how teams can, can operate and, and function at a high level? Well, it's funny you talk about that. So yesterday, uh, so I was watching the, the Packers and the Vikings and one of the uh, on Sunday night football. And, and one of the things that, uh, you know, the commentators were talking about was sort of this, this flow uh, that, that Aaron Rodgers has um, with his receivers and particularly with um, uh, Devontae Adams. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and, you know, the, the like chemistry between the, the quarterback and the receivers, something that's always important. And we all use Brady and Gronk and it's whoever. Right. But um uh, but I think, you know, the key element in, in all of those things, as it relates to a team or whatever is, is that takes time, right. And that, that takes time to build that. It takes lots of reps. Now I don't, you know, the reps are going to change depending on what your business is, what your industry is. It's not, you know, running routes. Right. But, um, uh, but I think the other thing that, that sort of creates this flow in an odd way 
is <clears throat> so I was, I was working with an organ with a, um, a group of executives, uh, uh, an intact executive team for this, this one organization, about 10,000 employees, mid-sized business. And one of the things that, that, uh, that they had talked about uh, that the COO had brought up is, I know I can trust these people um, because we've, we've been out in the cold together, right? And, and what he was getting at was uh, there have been crises. There have been these moments where we were all, you know, thrown into the fire together and we came out of it. And, and I think it's, it's in those crises where, where this flow actually develops. And it's not, you, you don't want to manufacture the crisis, but I always, when you think about the pandemic, uh, I think one golden opportunity of the pandemic and a lot of teams of all sizes have realized this is they were able to kind of create that flow. And I think the reason why is because, you know, what is the flow state, right? Is, is it's, it's, it's a situation where, where the rest of the world just melts away, right? All outside distractions kind of melt away and you can focus on the task at hand. And that's, you know, that's individually what flow is. And I think these crises produce that for a team and they allow the team to kind of get in to this rhythm where all the little stuff, the petty grievances and the, the other distractions sort of melt away. And that's how they're able to get into that flow. It's a huge advantage of crisis. You talked about risk taking earlier and let's take risks as long as they're heading in the right direction by taking those risks and going through some adversity and potentially some failure or some rejection, then perhaps they can learn more about themselves and what they're able to do. So if you combine the first part and the, and the second part of what you just talked about, then perhaps there is potential for flow. And we'll use Aaron Rodgers and Devontae Adams in the offseason. They are working together. They have many, many reps being there and knowing that if I throw it and the guy's not looking, he's going to turn around and the ball is going to be mm -hmm. there. Um, and you can see it and it is beautiful in sports, but I also think it exists in business and uh, partnerships in teams and organizations when they have a flow. And especially now where things are more remote, how are we going to create those types of flows? How are we going to create those types of experiences? Those are the challenges that a lot of my executives are asking right now is how do we continue to create culture and environment? Mm -hmm. I had a conversation with a CEO the other day about whether or not the culture can be intentionally built going forward in a remote world. I mm -hmm. personally think it can. I just think it's going to look a little differently. But mm -hmm. these are the conversations that I think are fascinating. Um, as you think about your work, I, I'm fascinated by this idea of inspiration and motivation. Mm -hmm. And I know you had a post that said, you know, dealing with being called a motivational speaker <laughs> and the, the perils that come with that phrase. And I had a podcast guest on named Cal Fussman. And Cal is a really sharp guy, asked great questions. And he came on my podcast. He has a podcast too, but he came on uh -huh. my podcast in the first few minutes were him talking about me. And, and he said, Brian Levinson, motivational speaker. And I stopped him. I was like, yeah. And he's like, what, what? And, and Cal speaks for a living. Yeah. I, thought, oh, I don't, I just don't think I can motivate anyone. I don't think that's my job. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, can you inspire? And I said, yeah, I think we all need inspiration in our life. It's like, okay, so inspirational speaker. Um, and so I think about you and, and your work and how much of your work do you think is motivational, inspirational, strategical? How do you think about your work as it relates to going into organizations? Yeah, well, I think it's, uh, I think it's, I like to call it inspirational. Uh, and it's taken me as you, you know, you talked about, so I, I wrote this article, right? Uh, uh, Confessions of a Self-Hating Motivational Speaker. And I think part of it for me is 
I have this, I have this baggage from, from, you know, imagining Chris Farley falling on a table, right? You can't, you, you can't say motivational speaker without me immediately conjuring up Matt Foley, right? And, uh, <coughs> And so that for me was just like a hang up. Uh, but ultimately it's like there's there's value in there's value in presenting an idea to somebody that gets them to think differently about the way that they're thinking, behaving and relating to other people. And that at, at its core fundamentally that's what inspiration is. Is um, you know, in motivation, you know, we we probably there's probably a longer conversation. What's the difference between motivation, and inspiration? I, I don't really know. Um, you know, it's 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 basically convincing people, giving people the the mindset, so that they they can uh, start believing that they can do what they're actually capable of doing. Um, and you know, at its core, that's kind of a noble. It's a noble profession. It's a noble thing if you can do that um, with people. And I think all leaders now, even if you're not a keynote speaker or whatever, uh, that's sort of your job now. And then, of course, like you mentioned, how do you do that in a in a virtual world? And you know, I I, I think also about this idea you you mentioned uh, creating a, a virtual culture. And I think that's something we're all going to figure out as we go. But I think one of the key elements of creating this team flow or building this virtual culture is, are we actually clear on what we're all trying to do? And, and so if we take this back to the football analogy, why they have an, uh, why, you know, why Aaron Rodgers and Devontae Adams have an advantage or any quarterback wide receiver tandem is because it's very obvious what they're trying to do. They're trying to catch passes, you know, throw and catch passes and score touchdowns. Right. It's a little less clear cut for many of our businesses. You know, are we trying to grow our business this year? Are we trying to grow our margins? Are we trying to attract new customers? Are we trying to strengthen the relationships we have with our existing customers? You know, am I trying to bring in the, the best talent or am I trying to nurture the talent that I already have? And of course, you can do a little bit of all of them. But what I find in all my work and I have for the last 15 years is we don't necessarily do that same thing we talked about at the very beginning of our conversation, freedom, humanity, whatever. We don't do that for our businesses. We have 10 priorities, but it's not clear which one is our primary focal point. And when we don't do that, it's almost impossible to get into flow because, you know, Devante is, is doing an out pattern and Aaron's trying to throw a, a bomb, right? And because we don't have the same objective and, that's where I think uh, that's what I think is is a really simple fix to this, uh, you know, to the challenge of creating culture and getting everybody on the same page in virtual or in person. Well, it's interesting that we're using sports analogies because there are similarities to business and sports, but there are also differences. And, mm -hmm. you know, Aaron Rodgers and Devontae Adams, their job is to execute. Like if they mm -hmm. execute at a really high level, they're rewarded, they're paid, the team can win. And that's happening. I think the Packers are 13 and three. Uh, mm -hmm best team in the NFL. And yet Aaron Rodgers has basically said, I'm not going back there because of leadership. And, mm -hmm. you know, Aaron Rodgers also had issues with the vaccine. And so you're <laughs> seeing other things pop up and multiple things can be true at once. Like athletes are often very good at executing. Doesn't necessarily mean that they are really good at strategy. Um, right. They're not necessarily the same thing. It can be, 
Uh, they mm-hmm. can be brilliant strategic minds, but I was watching the NBA and look at how many NBA player uh, coaches are former great players. A mm-hmm. lot of them are not. A lot of them mm-hmm. are not the ones that could execute at a really high level, but maybe right. they play division three basketball or high school basketball. Mm-hmm. And they really understand the strategy that goes into putting together a scheme or getting the right people on the bus or managing mm-hmm. players. I mean, there's, they're in leadership it, and mm-hmm. it doesn't mean a player can't also be in leadership. They can be just like a salesperson can also be a leader, but it doesn't, it's not necessarily a requirement. I can be an amazing salesperson and a really shitty leader. I can yes. be an amazing athlete and a really shitty leader. Right. Uh, they're, they're not mutually exclusive. So the well, sports analogies are interesting, but they're, they're not always apple, apple, apples to apples. And sometimes we think we glamorize and glorify certain things without acknowledging that execution is really important. If you're really good at executing, there's going to be value had there as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, you, you mentioned the, the, the salesperson, the sales manager, and I think it was in the, uh, the book, First Break All the Rules. I don't know if you ever read that. It's, you know, 20 years old. It's a, a, a Gallup book. But anyway, uh, it was like the, the, the precursor to the Strengths Finder books. But anyway, in that, they, they talk about that issue. And that was my main takeaway from, from that book is like in so many organizations, you know, the, the best waitress gets promoted to the manager. And it's such a mistake. You know, it's, it's, it's not good for, for the, the server, you know, that, that server may have, you know, may have found flow every day in their work, interacting with customers, you know, and, and just really knocking it out of the park there. And that's really important to the restaurant, to the organization, pay that server more, don't make them a manager. Um, and, you know, and it's the same thing. I mean, you know, pick a, pick a business, hair salons, whatever. Yeah. Executive assistants, same thing there, host or hostess at a restaurant. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like, why aren't they really valuing the host or hostess? It's the first person you interact with yeah. at the restaurant. Um, executive assistants, like great executive assistants can change a culture internally and externally. Um, mm-hmm. Pay them. So I think mm-hmm. we're on the same page here. I, I'd be remiss to not talk about quitting with you um, <laughs> before I let you go. You wrote a whole book on, on quitting, <laughs> why quitters win. And look, I work with highly competitive people, driven and ambitious. But I know for me, a lot of my biggest successes have come from rejection or coming from quitting or walking away from certain things. Mm -hmm. You know, I think about relationships, like I don't get to my wife if I don't quit other relationships before Mm -hmm. that. I don't get to doing this work if I don't quit sales, which is where I was early in my career. So I just think we we tend to demonize quitting, but um, I'd love for you to talk about quitting and, and the value of it. Yeah, well, and so it's really all about this issue of of making trade-offs, right? Is is so it's it's as I often tell my audiences, I firmly believe that you can accomplish anything you want this year, but you can't accomplish everything you want this year. You have to make a decision on what you're going to shoot for and what you're going to quit. The good things, not not you know, not the um, I'm gonna I'm gonna quit smoking or you know I'm gonna quit yelling at my my husband or my wife or I'm not talking about bad things. I'm talking about other really great, valuable, awesome, exciting goals that you're gonna say not this year, right? And that's the key to why quitters win. The people that really you know knock it out of the park with their with their work with their life are those that are able to focus on, you know, that one thing before you can have grit, that grit has to be focused in a specific direction. Right. Um, 
And so that, that's the whole notion of it. And for me, that, that's part and parcel with decision-making because you know the actual word decide is all about killing and cutting. You know, and I always I bring that up to audiences all the time that, you know, do you know what the the other English words that share the same uh, root as decide are homicide, suicide, genocide, pesticide. What do all those words have in common? They're all about killing something. And if you put that in context of decide, it gives you a whole new understanding about what it actually means to make a decision. Just doing something is not making a decision. You haven't made a decision until you've decided not to do something else, until you've decided to quit something else. It's very cool. I often have my clients do anti-goals, which are more along the lines of the smoking and what do you want to yeah. stop doing? But I, I want to put something onto that, which is, all right, what are the anti-goals of things that you enjoy? Like what? Yeah. And that to me, is a really good point because there's a reason we are doing them. Um, and it's probably because there's some value that we place in the thing. Like mm -hmm. I love to eat steak. Uh, <laughs> I enjoy it. So that's uh -huh. probably why I want to keep doing it, even though it's really bad for me, just, this is me talking yeah. uh, because of some of the health stuff that I have. And, yeah. and, but there's a reason I keep doing it. I like the way it tastes. <laughs> um, right. So well, um, yeah. You know, I'll get like an example for me recently. And by the way, this happens to me like, uh, like every six months, it's something new, but you know, so, so I, um, a few years ago, I, I, I started getting into, to CrossFit. That was, um, it's like my, my adult way of playing games. Right. And, uh, and I was, I was getting really into it, but I had to, I had to pull back on it and say, okay, hold on. At the end of the day, I can put a bunch of time into this and, and I still kept doing it, but I was like doing like two a days, you know, and I thought, hold on, I've got kids, I've got this career, I've got this business. And so I had to say, you know, advancing in this thing that I love doing and it's really fun and, and it's, and it's important to me and it's making me healthy and it's all these things, but nevertheless, at a certain level, there, there's diminishing returns in what I have to give up for all these other things that are also important to me. So I had to like put it on the back burner. And I think in, in our businesses, we have a bunch of those things and a really helpful concept that maybe, you know, you could use with your clients in, in along the lines of anti-goals is um, a wait list. Okay. So we often talk about start doing lists and stop doing lists. And in, in strategic planning sessions, that's a really common thing to do, right? And the stop doing list is like, again, we're going to stop doing the bad stuff. But a wait list is more, it's not bad. It's good. It's great. In fact, we were, we're definitely in the next five years going to do this because it's so awesome. But not this year, not this quarter, not these six months, right? And you put it on there. I mean, but you know, hold it up there is like, we're, we're, we're going to work so hard at doing these things just so that we can get to that really awesome thing. But right now it's going to spread us too thin. We don't have the resource. We don't have the time. We don't have the people to do that and this. Right. And so a wait list is like, it's kind of like a halfway. It's like rent the RV. Really. <laughs> really it's, 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 um, you're just putting it on hold. So it doesn't, it's, it's not having to make this all or nothing decision that we're going to quit this forever, even though we really want to do it. It could be really great. You're not quitting it forever. You're just putting it on hold. I love that. And, and I go to worksheets. Like I have probably 200 worksheets, so mm -hmm. I can already see, all right, a wait list worksheet. Let's just create a list of those elements. I think that's, that's brilliant. 
on your website, you've got on the bottom of the website, it says, you know, number one best selling author, six continents spoken on, 108 Fortune 500 clients, and then <laughs> 7,264,000 things left to learn. Uh-huh. And we haven't got the decision pulse on the website yet, but we're going to get you some IT help and get that on the website. (laughs) (laughs) I got some guys in India that are already on top of that. All right, good. They're probably better than, than what I can help you get. (laughs) 7,264,000 things left to learn. So clearly you're emphasizing on the website that you are someone who's curious and a lifelong learner and someone who still has a ways to go. Where does your desire to learn come from? Where does your curiosity come from? Give us some, some background on, on where you think that comes from for you. Oh, that's a great question. I don't know if I can pinpoint an exact spot. I mean, I think like many things, just something that's always been there, uh, kind of like the, the, the fish in water, um, for me, I've just, uh, just always been curious. And then of course, I think like with all of us, my, my family sort of, uh, you know, fanned that curiosity or at least didn't put it out (laughs) maybe is a better way to put it, but, um, you know, yeah. Where did it come from? I don't, that's a, that's a great question. I don't know if I have an answer for it other than if I had to speculate, um, I grew up in, in rural Iowa, really small town. Uh, so I am, you know, I'm basically in the place where nothing important happens as far as, you know, on a, on a world scale And so I think I just, I'd always looked at the outside world as just this place of awe and wonder, you know, would I have thought that way if I grew up in Manhattan or I don't know, maybe, um, maybe then I would have too, but I think it was just this like craving to see what else is out there, you know, beyond the cornfields, literally, (laughs) right? Literally beyond the cornfields. And so, so for me, it was kind of like not having all these crazy stimulations around me as a as a young kid. um, Maybe fan the curiosity that stuck with me as an adult. You know, I still, to this day, I just kind of like um, a lot of a lot of people don't like traveling. They don't like airplanes, uh, and they don't like dealing with airports and whatever. And I've, I've told my wife, my, my dad this many times that uh, I think I'm doing the perfect job because I don't mind sitting on an airplane. I don't mind being in an airport. I don't mind standing in line because I just love looking at all the people, all the different people doing weird things, wondering what's going on in their world and how did they get here and what's their story. And, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know where that comes from. Where, where do you think it comes from for you? I'm exploring. I think like it's probably curiosity is the thing that I'm most interested in right now. Um, we talked a little bit about it before we started recording it. It's just fascinating that our children all have it. And then over time, at least I think our society tends to say, hey, even our schools, right? Like we don't get good grades based on our curiosity. We get good grades based on regurgitating the information. And then if right. we fail that test, we don't get to then keep trying to learn. Like we're told you have to have the answers and the solutions. And I think the same thing happens in our work. We're expected to have an expertise and then know what we're doing in that. And for me, like I grew up in a house that confidence and conviction were very high. So you could speak your mind. It wasn't a yes, sir, no, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am house. It was the dinner table. Speak your mind. Uh, Sometimes speak too much. There were consequences, but for the most part, we were encouraged to think freely and, and yeah. to speak our mind. And so there were arguments and mm-hmm. even still, I was just away with my family. Like 
it very easily can go into arguments, which is beautiful. It's one of the reasons that me and my two brothers believe in ourselves, like high in confidence and conviction. But what I've done a lot of exploring in, in my own world is when we go high on confidence and conviction, sometimes we reduce our curiosity. And Mm -hmm. as a result, we might be blind or deaf to the opportunity to learn. Mm -hmm. And so I've started asking people about where their curiosity comes from. If I get the sense that they are highly curious, Mm -hmm. in addition to that, if you study a lot of elite performers or leaders, I think curiosity almost always underpins their ability to learn their craft. Mm -hmm. And so I just am pretty all in on curiosity. And um, when I saw that on your website, I was like, Oh, there's the flashing sign for curiosity, right? Like look at all these things I've done. Look at how great I am. Hire me to speak. Okay, cool. And by the way, I don't know shit. Like, <laughs> that's right, that's right. I, I, think, I don't know the first thing about anything, right? And so I, I'm fascinated with, I've got two small kids, a, a almost five-year-old and a six-year-old. How do I instill in them confidence and conviction, but also curiosity, uh, or I should say, and also curiosity, because that to me, that, that mix, because there is going to be a time where I have to be convicted and I have to speak my mind and I have to stand up and do the damn thing and execute it. Mm-hmm. Um, in front of a 10,000 person audience, like you do, yeah. you, if you're up there and you're just curious, they're not paying for that. They're paying right. to learn right. what Nick Tazer knows. You come on this podcast. I want to b- bring out everything yeah. from you to share with my audience. And I'm the shit. And I don't know shit like those two <laughs> right. things. Like, I just think that's where greatness lives and lies. And I think it leads to a fulfilling experience in this world. So that is something I, I don't know where it all comes from. And that's what I'm excited to continue to explore with people. So, well, it, it's interesting, you know, it's, it's just, as I'm talking, as you ask that question, and frankly, thank you for asking because I've never, I've never asked where it comes from. Right. And, you know, and I think about that with, with my own kids now, now I've maybe uh, I've, I've intentionally had them out exploring the world, uh, which was different than way I, and so I wonder in some ways, uh, am I making them more curious or less curious? You know, I, I don't know. Like, are they going to get to 20 and be like, I've seen it all. I don't, you know, I don't, whatever. I'm not curious. Right. I, you know, and that's like my worst nightmare, right. Is, is that they totally lose their curiosity and sense of wonder. Well, here's a good thing. I don't think it dies. I don't yeah. think, I think it might get pushed back or stuffed in a closet somewhere, but I think that's the reason people like documentaries, they watch movies, mm-hmm. they go to yes. concerts, they go to sporting events, is mm-hmm. those, they're all curious what's going to happen. So I yeah. think it is innately human. And I just think as we get older, we can over-index on other parts of our life and forget the value of wonder. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I just like the question, why is the sky blue? I think... Einstein asked that in his journal. And um, I think Michelangelo asked that in his journal. And it's like, (laughs) you know, these are two of the most brilliant minds of our time. And uh, I just think that we need with, with kids, I'm often finding myself, no, stop asking damn questions that I don't know the answers (laughs) to. But I also think it's valuable to say your kids sometimes, I don't know, let's go find out. Like, Mm -hmm. let's go explore and also to ask them, well, what do you think? So that they Mm -hmm. can also develop their own answers for the world. And so I think as you're bringing your kids along, it's like, all right, let's see what, what is going on for them. Maybe a question to ask them, Hey, what do you Mm -hmm. think about when you're in an airport? Maybe they think Mm -hmm. about McDonald's and Chick-fil-A and what's for lunch. And you're looking at the person that's working at Chick-fil-A and wondering, gosh, how do they have the amazing service that they have? So like I, I am just, that's why I have this podcast. It's curiosity, man. Right. 
let's just learn from people. And uh, mm -hmm. I have literally a sticky note. I'll show you. They won't be able to see it because we're just doing audio. But I just put this like right next to my computer. Uh -huh. Stay curious. Sticky notes to stay stay curious is what it says. So mm -hmm. I think it can be learned. I think it can be developed. I think it can be harnessed. I think the best organizations in the world are obsessed with constantly remaining curious and open to possibilities. And I think it's a superpower. Let me ask you a question. When, when do you find yourself most looking at that sticky note? G give me an example. When's, when's the last time you, you looked at it? I mean, maybe before this interview, probably before every interview you look at it, right? I would imagine. I'll tell you, I'll tell you where it started. I, I know like I've interviewed people that I grew up as fans of and I'm mm -hmm. blown away that I get to have a conversation with them. So yeah. I've definitely fanboyed on, you know, who I've interviewed and been blown mm -hmm. away by it. But the one interview that I was most nervous for was with Dr. Michael Gervais, um, who has a great podcast called Finding Mastery and mm -hmm. is in the sports psychology world. And his podcast was the first podcast I've really ever listened to and is really the inspiration and the impetus for me firing up this podcast. Mm -hmm. And so I got to interview him in person and I had my, you know, it was the old school way. There was no computer in front of me. It was two yeah. microphones and two guys sitting in a chair, but I had one sticky note with five or six questions that I knew I wanted to hit. And at the top of it, I wrote, stay curious. Mm -hmm. And that was when it started for me. Cause I knew as long as I stayed curious with him, we would have a great conversation. And I knew what could get in the way of me having a great conversation was, do I need to flex my muscles and show them what I know? And, right. you know, like ego basically could get in the way of me just asking him questions. And at the end of the interview, he just said, you ask great questions. And it was a reminder to me. So ever since then, I've written Stay Curious on a sticky note. And I don't know, I don't think I intentionally look at it and then say, all right, I'm interviewing Nick, but I've got it in eye level. I also yeah. keep it by my monitor where I have sessions with clients as a reminder there. And um, I think I need to work on it as a dad where I can just stay curious. And with my wife, like I, at work, I'm pretty good at turning it on. I think it's uh -huh. away from work is where I need those reminders probably more than anywhere at this point. Um, so well. You know, getting back to the decision pulls conversation, it's also, it's like the curiosity about the work is hard to turn off when you're talking to your wife, when you're dealing with your kids, or at least it is for me. Uh, and that's, you know, that that's the, the fundamental challenge. And so why it's like, we've got to be clear, which what's our pulse for this, this situation, right? Now it's, now it's about being the best uh, uh, father and, and husband that I can. Right. So let me be curious about that. Right. It's kind of what you're getting at. Yeah. Your family didn't hire you to be an organizational psychologist. <laughs> no, they did not. They married no, they you to be a husband. They're sorely they... disappointed if they, <laughs> if they did. Right. Yeah. But. So, hey, Nick, this this has been awesome. I think we could keep riffing forever, but uh, I know you've got plenty of stuff to do, as, as I do as well. Um, if people want to learn more about you, I know they can go to your website, which is simple, nicktasler.com. Mm -hmm. uh, social media is there a specific place that you want them to go to around social media that you like to play more than others and anything else? You know, LinkedIn. Go ahead. Yeah. LinkedIn's probably a, a good place to, a good place to start. If you're into Instagram, I don't really do Facebook. Um, although I guess sort of by extension, I do Facebook via Instagram, but anyway, that's beside the point. Um, so LinkedIn and uh, yeah, and go to my website and that's uh, those are good places to start. Awesome. And Nick started this conversation by saying he's got all these remote offerings now. So he's ready for you. 
if you're interested in hiring him to talk to your company or, or bring him in for a speaking gig, highly recommend doing that. Nick, uh, this has been a blast. I play on Twitter at Brian Levinson and then LinkedIn's the other place I like to play often at Brian Levinson. And people can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Uh, this has been a blast, Nick. Appreciate you coming on the podcast and hopefully our paths will cross when you're on the road and I'm at home, uh, come by and we'll give you a nice home cooked meal. Uh, and, and you can, we can, we can talk about all things, decision-making, uh, sometime over a glass of wine. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you for listening to intentional performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. I figured out that one easy, simple solution here would have been instead of making one very big, very costly decision to buy an RV, I could have made one very small decision, taken a little bit of time and a little bit of money and rented an RV to see, does this actually fit with my pulse, right? When I, my definition of freedom, does this actually work with it? And had I done that, it would have been abundantly clear that when I say freedom, this is not what I'm talking about right? This is might be somebody else's definition of freedom. It's not mine.